Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and Media Mavens Podcast. And I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Koshman, Chief Creative Officer for AMB Publicity. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Sarah. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, another Tuesday afternoon of podcast. We have an awesome guest coming up who's a dear friend of mine who's been very instrumental leading the digital and technology space. So let's bring Allison Dollar on board and talk to Allison about all things tech right now. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, Allison. So, Allison Dollar, you are the CEO of ITV Alliance. I know you've been on the board for 13 years for the Media Excellence Award. Wow. You're involved with the Emmys. You've just, you've done, you wrote a book. You are one of the smartest women I've ever met. And you know technology oh, better than you. anyone. So Michelle and I have done a lot. You know, we've been talking about health, fitness, cooking. I don't know, you call it. Michelle and I have been all lifestyles, I know. But yeah, you're so smart and intuitive on the tech side. And I think one of our podcast interviews is all about leaning on tech, to thrive and survive, you know, there's so much disruptive tech, AR, VR, OTD, multi-platform. And I think this is such a big area of where is this going? Mm-hmm. Is it sustainable? Who's doing it right? What do we have to look forward to and how, you know, where are we at with all this disruptive tech right now? So I think this mm-hmm. is a good chance to talk to you about where you're at in the tech space and give us some feedback and thoughts on technology right now. Well, you know, the whole notion about technology was that it eventually would be invisible and that it would not be disruptive. That's the whole mm-hmm. idea of having it be mm-hmm. seamless and having it be organic. And I would hazard to say that in the television space, because that's really the space I'm in, digital video and the media side versus pure tech in the classic Silicon Valley sense, and not coincidentally, Silicon Valley has gotten the television tech wrong many times that we have hit that inflection point And a lot of it has been galvanized by COVID. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's interesting because, you know, we've had conversations and being in the tech space, I'm always pushing use tech, use tech, you're a startup. CES is pretty much went from the biggest tech show down to it's a virtual in January as everything else. And so I always see it's an opportunity for startups to be smarter, utilize any strategy, creativity to thrive and survive and everything. But it's just so hard to tell. There's a lot of great startups and tech companies that we're seeing that are announcing, like Zynga just announced it, M&A, there's IPOs. These tech companies are still thriving. And they said the tech industry wasn't affected by COVID. They are doing better than ever, but right. I'm not really sure. You know, Michelle, you you and Allison are both in the TV and the content mm-hmm. space. So I'm not sure if that's a realistic thing to pinpoint that tech is getting better, doing well, or if it's just a matter of the verticals that fall under that, you know? Well, uh, you know, streaming media has been around for a long time, actually, and since the 90s at least and used in the B2B way and then B2C and obviously was a galvanizing force for smartphones, that kind of digital video. But with everyone quarantined, of course, streaming 
completely soared. I mean, 200 percent, 1,000 percent, if you look year over year in certain months from January to now versus last year. So I don't think any of that is going to drop off dramatically. Of course, it will go down when we go back out into the world, but certain things are going to be fundamentally changed forever. Transactional mm-hmm. nature of things like shop and click to buy, that sort of first generation of that being in mid-90s all the way through, that's also going to be very much more quickly disrupted by just the use of data and behavioral side of the streaming business. So a lot of these things that we were talking about a long time were already around, but now everybody's much more cognizant of how to integrate them into their strategy. That's all coming full circle. So so really the brands that are able to catch up are going to be able to profit, right? I mean, it seems like we're going to romanticize the past like everybody, every generation always has. But once people do get familiar with Zoom and Uber Eats, it's going to be tough to, you know, have to all go and do those meetings in person when we know that we can do it from home or like you mentioned, streaming and stuff. So it seems like the companies that are willing to pivot now are going to be sustained through the pandemic and then even more beyond, right? Well, even in the television vertical itself, you see, for instance, Peacock, right, the NBC spinning off, and all of the offerings, like Disney Plus and whole litany of those, and and many of these that span production as well, like Cinedime, that are generating all kinds of digital-first television channels, for want of a better term. They're, They're calling it linear as opposed to something to do with apps and things, but it's Actually, it's just bundled programming. And there are many, many of those plays out there. They're going to get consolidated more as well. But all the distribution is completely exploded. Everyone knew about Roku and some of those red box. But if you look at Plex, and there's just probably about 40 of them out there right now, many of which are not known, some of which are. But that industry is just not going to go back, but I do think the living room experience is going to come back again in terms of shared co-viewing, and there's a lot of interesting things going there back for the set-top box and uh, some of the other technologies around ATSC 3.0, which is a, a standard for over-the-air broadcast. And people forget over-the-air is still really viable. So. Yeah. It's actually one of those odd things where opportunities have opened up out of a situation that's actually quite tragic. I feel like there's so much distribution, so many platforms to drive out content and reach consumers on the go. Because that's been the big push, all these channels and everything. But I feel like because we've been on a lockdown before was there was so much content and not enough channels and Netflix and Amazon, for example, we always talk about this, what's new, what's going on with Netflix, you know, what are they doing right now on user generated content? The other side of it is I feel like there's so much distribution, but there may not be enough content now because we're going to start getting into reruns because we just don't have enough content because nobody's been producing content. Do you think that's going to be a big issue? coming up in the next year or so? Absolutely. There was a couple of art pieces out in the trades just today and yesterday about that, that some of the analysts are predicting content shortfalls with majors, including Netflix. 
so as that old saw goes in the shows that we know, uh, content is king and all of that, everyone, all the cliches everyone says, there is a degree of truth to that. It has to refresh and people are not on location, then you have a shortfall. But these short form, other kinds of like the Jukins of the world and Cheddar and uh, some of these others, they really have done well because they use a lot of user-generated content, too, especially Jukin is known for that. So, and the level of consumer and prosumer production quality has come so way high up. So, if you're talking about the organic way to be able to push that stuff out very inexpensively, that is completely different now than it was 10 years ago. And that's a whole other sub-markets category of things, influencer-generated media as well as just regular user-generated media, and then some of these back catalogs that are getting refreshed. And there's all those assets. There's a need there. There's a vacuum on the big distribution platform side, and then there is this flow-through that's happening, and that's also accelerated by COVID. I feel like we're going to be hitting reruns before we know it for a while. But you know what, Allison? It's something interesting you said because I watched probably... For the first time, just for fun, I watched the Emmy nominations this year, right? And Leslie Jones did an amazing job announcing the primetime Emmy nominations. I know the PSW chapter, Mary Ellen and Kristen Castillo, they did a great job out over YouTube. Usually nominations come out early in the morning or they come out at some weird time. No one watches them except the trades and the industry. This year, it was like a show. It was like watching a talk show. And inevitably, my interest got peaked in some of the shows that were nominated that I'd never watched. I started watching a show that I, I'm now six seasons in. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've heard of it for years, but I didn't watch it because of watching the nomination announcements. So there's also this shift now where people are maybe a little bit more appreciative of the content that's out there. Instead of just looking for something that's new, here's a show I went back six seasons and now I'm a full on groupie. <laughs> yeah, Thanks well to... I did that with Ozark. I uh-huh. hadn't seen it. I was it, just gonna say Ozark. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were talking about that a while ago. And I, and I can't yeah, go I know. Because I don't I just I'm like, oh I was never into it then. But it's just exactly what you guys are t- I mean, Allison, are you watching Ozark? <laughs> I watched the whole thing. Oh, I got goodness. all sucked in and watched it. <laughs> yeah. So that's what happened. I, well, I love Jason Bateman. I love all that cast. But the thing is, is that, yes, I agree. It, there's a cultural idea on this, too, of really being more appreciative of programming. What would we do if we didn't have streaming video right now? We would, right. It would be even worse than it is. Right. And if we didn't have television, that would be even worse, too, the home you know, because I read a lot of regular books, as a matter of fact, but still, you do need that escape. You need all the rest of the things that industry affords. And so, Sarah's point, other things that are happening, even being regenerated on the mobile side, a lot of that integration is going sure. forward. Of course, big data and metadata attached to this content is going to mean lots of different things for shopping and commerce. And even if you just look at home networks and all of the stuff that we know with beloved Alexa and Ring and everything, all that getting integrated with video, too, because that's really the idea is that everything that has any kind of digital pathway is going to be enlivened and emboldened and empowered with video. It's even things that used to be just text-based. So 
that's already gotten accelerated as well. And it's very, very interesting. I always feel like we always talk about like, it's so, thank God I could just record something and skip through all the advertising. Then with all these different multi-platforms, we stopped watching basic TV on a basic level. We just recorded what we wanted to and watched everything else. But now I feel like because it's been lack of content, are we going back to watching TV again? And, you know, who's going to win the broadcast war? Is it going to be all these distribution channels, the Roku's and Netflix, the Amazons, the Peacocks, or is TV going to start stepping up their game again, you know, on the broadcast yeah. side with the HBOs and Showtimes, because people are now going to start going back to that traditional, let's watch TV and see what's on because we have more time on our hands. Well, just remember, it wasn't that long ago that HBO and those cable was not considered television, right? Because there's broadcast right. television, there's and network television, yeah. and local, which is not, all not the same. There are different sub industries. There's cable. You have your satellite, and the right. others that are telephony driven, like AT and T. So all that consolidation is been allowed and probably there's going to be disruption that way too at some point because some of them I think are just too big. The notion of what one does at home <laughs> when your home is your workplace. For a lot of people, some of us have worked for ourselves a really long time. That wasn't such a huge transition, but for a lot of people, it was very traumatic and so at least they got right. to see their co-workers and give a wave and give these virtual hugs. But, you know, sometimes it is actually more relaxing, like we're doing now, to not be on video because you have to have this certain kind of concentration with the screen. And there right. is a freedom in just being on another kind of audio well, signal I also, alone. I, I also think, I mean, you know, everybody's at home. People have kids. They are definitely watching TV and screens more. But I think the good thing about technology is we're not spending two, three hours driving around and aggravated traffic, at least here in LA, trying to do phone calls, missing stuff. I just think there is some benefits coming out of this for the tech and right. content side by because you're you're controlling your environment. You could control you know what you're doing and what you're watching. I think there may be a lot more MAs. I think it was interesting that what was it T-Mobile just did the big merger a month or so ago. So it's kind of like I think as we walk into 2021, I think there's going to be a lot more mergers going on out there, given the yeah. way things have gone this and, year. And you know what, Sarah, you just made me think of something in speaking about control, because I want to say a couple months ago, it could have been late last year, Bob Iger, the executive chairman for Disney, made a comment that I was obsessed about for like two or three months. I don't even think I talked to anyone about it, but he said he was basing the whole future of the Disney brand on Disney+. Plus. And it was such a bombastic statement for like two months, you know, you'd be driving along or walking somewhere and I, it would pop in my head. I go, what in the world did he mean by that? They just opened a park in Shanghai. You know, they acquired Star Wars and he's yeah. saying Disney plus is the future. And then at one point during COVID, it hit me. <laughs> Here I am, you know, just a normal working person. But when you are doing something through a streaming platform or a digital platform like that, you're able to acquire data that they used to have to pay focus groups to get. Now, like, for example, let's say they found out that everybody was watching the Aladdin movie, the new Aladdin remake movie, and that was the number one thing. 
they're probably going to make an Aladdin sequel or they're going to do more casting projects with Will Smith or they're going to, they, when they realize something works because they've been able to capture that data, they can lean into things that are going to be more profitable instead of guessing. And I thought- There are actually a bunch of companies that I cannot mention that are actually have that kind of predictive analytics tool for that exact thing for things that have not even gone to pilot yet. Wow. So absolutely, you need the predictive aspect of this is very, very helpful beyond just looking in the rearview mirror, which is how they always did it, because they can get near real-time data and do just-in-time marketing of the stuff and also basically pop-up programming. And that's what I was alluding to about these other OTT channels, because what they're doing mm -hmm. is mix and matching from various libraries and asset groups to do thematic channels. So let's say something, you know, on environment and green or something on family life or something on just on really linear on skateboarding, for instance. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of niche channels that are huge in terms of reach and depth, like Reverie, which is a, you know, queer channel. And they have everybody in there and they mix and match and they do quite well. So this is the whole idea with Disney Plus is to be able to be more nimble and leverage the digital infrastructure because this infrastructure has taken a long time. It's basically taken 30, 40 years to build the infrastructure right. that we have to be able for this all to work the way it does now. And so, but it's here. So we are right. fortunate. Yeah. I think also That's now amazing. that they've lifted everything, the content industry is going to just, it's going to be a, paradigm shift with content you know I, I know somebody who's off in Oklahoma right now shooting Allison you know Lance Robbins he's shooting for Hallmark Channel four or five movies he, they're trying to get things speeded up for that I know Joe Jonas is leaving in eight weeks ago shoot a movie you know I've seen El Rey Networks and Daniel Tibbetts post stuff on new content so I just think it's just going to be a new way to shoot, capture, and distribute is going to be much faster than it used to be because we're going to be scrambling to catch up to what we lost the past seven, eight months. So I think Yeah, I mean it really is more like retail doing just in time marketing and pop ups. I mean that's what I call it, pop up programming. And it's Hallmark is a good example of Hallmark and Lifetime in their Christmas programming and the Christmas programming that they do in the summer as well as in the holiday season because the consumption is just so huge for them. Mm -hmm. And then some of these others that are also had, well, even Disney, for instance, I mean, they knew Hamilton would do well on demand, but it was an amazing push for them to get Disney Plus and do it that way, that, that grow that subscriber base so, so quickly just by having Hamilton on there over 4th of July. And mm -hmm. it was just a marketing effort that ended up yielding way more than even they expected. So we'll see with Mulan, admit, you know, I think the same thing, I think Mulan's going to be huge and they're charged, what, $30, right, Michelle? I think something like that. Right. Yeah. Well, well I'm like, excited about this. Kind of like, so I, I am too. Hamilton, but like, it's kind of like the trolls. Like, I know we chat about this, like when trolls music world tour came out, there's a great new Steve, Corel movie that's out right now, but they're not, they haven't been in movies. So they're going $20 online Netflix download for the first month because they're just trying to make the money up that you would pay if you went into an actual theater. And I'm not so sure 
how that business model is going to pan out for a lot of these bigger blockbusters right now. I think you have a barrier to entry right now of Steam content because the networks are going to start doing a premium charging just to be able to watch what they've been putting months into producing and marketing that there's no theaters right now. Well, I think there has to be a degree of experimentation that they have to just basically suck it up and do. And historically, Mm -hmm. because it was more rigid of the release windows and all of that, and now they're not really bound to it because it is inexpensive once you get it prepared and then push it out on digital. Once it's all ready to go, the rest of that is less expensive than it used to be. So they can be more flexible on the model. Yeah, I think I know what's the the new Beyonce one at Disney, um, Black is King. It's just a tremendous cast, a tremendous production. But I don't know if they started and they produced that before COVID or just went through editing before COVID or if that was a, hey, given what's going on in the environment today, this is something that's going to be a bigger push if we produce it now. So I think it's interesting to kind of see what's coming out right now, you know, online right. streaming and in the, well, I'm saying the movies are the movies right now. But I, I think it's the content chunks, Allison. I think it's, sorry, Michelle, I just think it, it's going to be easier to push out. The whole thing was, chunks of content, quick, easy, multi-screen, share, distribute. You know, there's going to be a lot of short one-off hits right now to get content pushed out as soon as they can to get their fans and get users back. Right. And think about, too, who's really pioneering a lot of these push, who's teaching people in their own household how to get these systems set up and use them is younger Gen Z and millennial audiences, right? The digital natives who are teaching Gen X and baby boomers really about streaming and about watching on their devices. And it felt so uncomfortable the first time that we all kind of tried to do it. And now it's incredibly easy. It's just, you know, an extension of our relaxation habits. And I was recently talking with someone, they were saying that, you know, because these younger audiences are impacting it so greatly, we're seeing content take a shift also into their personalities, their their concerns with diversity and ethical issues, their flexibility and, and, you know, concerns for the climate. And we're seeing our entertainment taking a shift more to those storylines and to those narratives, which is fascinating. So it just emphasizes this is a reset button launching point where companies can reassess their forward plans and kind of how they're structured and try to reconnect to the next generations, the next audiences, the next way that people want to consume media. Well, if you look at, for instance, uh, The Voice and NBC did an amazing job with it because they, of course, talk about disruption right in the middle of their cycle, which is a competition show that's supposed to be live. They had to totally rework how they were going to produce that show. And they did an amazing job. They sent kits to everybody where they were quarantined. They intercut live to tape with live, with pre-tape. And uh, they were very smart about how they stitched that all together. So it's a whole different sensibility. And those contestants largely are younger, although some of the best ones were actually older. (laughs) And honestly, Sarah knows I say this all the time because I just get very irritable about all of it because I was a chief strategy officer of one of the first companies, streaming companies to go public back in the literally the turn of this century. So Mm -hmm. to me, some of us that were around 
that now we are later in our careers are like, yeah, 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 we've been telling you guys. And now all <laughs> the younger people are acting like they invented it, which they did right. not. But, right. you know, that's the way of the world. You pass the torch to the next generation, and there's some kind of a beauty in that because you do want that to happen where it passes on to the next generation of people. I think, and I also think it's more advanced. It's like the next generation 2.0, it's just more an advanced enhanced. And I just think technology does make us smarter because we have to use it. We've got to use it to communicate, to do everything. So, you know, younger set people, they grew up on technology. And I always have this thing, and I know this is going to be stupid, but we're on a podcast, so I don't care. I feel like technology either makes us lazier versus smarter at times. And it's interesting to get that perspective because there's so much tech, it makes it so easy to download, create, distribute, watch, play. But it gets to the point to where we're really getting smarter. We're just getting lazier because I don't have anybody's phone numbers memorized because it's in my cell phone. So if anybody asks me- (laughs) We used to do that. (laughs) I think I may have, Allison's have memorized my parents. But at the same time, does technology make us smarter or just lazier because we can now rely on it so much to stream and do what we want versus making the effort? That's always my big- Well, it certainly makes us less literate. And I do think there is a societal cost to that because the references people use, even in certain cliches and turn of phrase, they don't understand the historical context of where that came from. And that can be a problem, definitely. And But on the other hand, it does free us up to have other kinds of larger strategic thinking time, which is awesome. And also, though, I mean, Sarah, you're the mobile maven. It's fun, right? All that stuff's fun. Like you love going in and out of all the apps and trying new things and all that sort of thing. I do. I, I, I've never thought I was going to be such a tech junkie until I started the agency and until we created the MEAs, which is interesting because, you know, Allison, Michelle, Scott, when I started the MEAs, 13 years ago, we were so, so ahead of mobile. I'm thinking the Mobile Excellence Awards, honoring innovation leadership, so many mobile startups doing such innovative stuff. We were so ahead of it. And then we kind of leveled it out. And now we're in our 13th year. And I know AMB has done amazing job supporting us as well. And, you know, we're now in our 13th year. And I remember that's so great. Music, sports, weather, news, and sports. We're now into disruption, crypto, fintech, AR, VR. It's just amazing right. how <laughs> the tech space has evolved. I mean, I am going to say in my defense, age-wise or not, during COVID, I did figure out right before COVID how to wire up my Spotify to play and my XM satellite to play throughout the whole house and speaker. That is my... There you go. That is my tech. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I was I'm, in shock and impressed. I'm was, impressed with that because I have no, no, no patience with that at all. And it's interesting. And Michelle, I mean, you have a lot of big entertainment clients and partners. And what have you found mm-hmm. that they have felt about all of this well, on their side? You guys, if you and Allison, you and Michelle both, literally spent so many years down at Comic-Con together with mm-hmm. your clients doing stuff. And I saw a thing on um, with Andre last night, one of the talk shows, one of the game shows of, you know, what do you do or, you know, who doesn't lie? And there are three Cosmoplay, Cosmicon characters mm-hmm. on one of the segments of it. But I just think it's interesting from a perspective since you both have such a tech 
and entertainment background. You guys have both done the Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Where that's going. Yeah. Comic-Con really, you know, when they started it 40 years ago, it was, you know, uh, everything stereotypically nerds. And then around a decade or so ago, when the major entertainment distributors realized their target audiences were there, they could spend $100,000 or $200,000 on a party to see whether they should make a sequel and put $20 million into another project. They could test it out there. They could test out things. They could expand. They could introduce. And it kind of then became a merge of pop culture with business. And then, of course, as a lot of us get older, I watched um, Ready Player One a couple nights ago, which I know came out a little while ago. But it was clearly speaking to an 80s and 90s generation. They've talked about The Shining and Chucky and Pac-Man. And so those people now are in their 30s and 40s, and they will spend their consumer dollars to see something with that nostalgia in it. And they'll take their kids to see it and then explain it to them. So yeah, the Comic-Con, well, San Diego International, it, it brings about $150 million to the city of San Diego just in that weekend you know, about 60 million of it to taxes. And that's about the same as as a Super Bowl every year. Yeah, that mix for sure with live entertainment. And now they're, you know, we, we've spoken with Derek Mackey with COVID-19. They're just taking that online. And now you can have more of a global participation with those sorts of celebrations. Yeah, what's so nice about Comic-Con too is that it's very supportive environment. Unlike a lot of the other straight B2B trade shows, uh, you don't have this really competitive thing going on there. The actual attendees are all very supportive of each other and it's very mm-hmm. family friendly. It's quite a nice atmosphere. And CES is its own thing. It's basically yes. a city within a city within a city. And uh, <laughs> it's, you have to be up for it and literally have a game face to do it. Whereas some of these that are driven more like VidCon also with that driven yes. by creators for creators. That's mm-hmm. a different sensibility and a different different feeling about it. They're actually almost more like the film festivals where right. the creative community is honored and the technology is in service to the creative community versus the other way around at most of the other shows that we go to. Mm-hmm. It's funny you said that, Allison, because a couple years ago there was, and I'm, I'm dating it by saying that it was on Twitter, but there was a hashtag going around Twitter during Comic-Con that was Comic-Con is America's can. So like you said, those film festivals where you, you introduce, you distribute, you sell your projects. Yeah. That's a whole nother arena where they're doing that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I have a question for you, Allison, about foreign markets in, in television and on some level in film too. You know, China's a big conversation. The five major distributors, that that's always a question about how well it's going to do in China, which normally as a normal consumer who doesn't speak Chinese, like I don't think twice about it. But in the industry, it's a big conversation. And even, you know, movies like Godzilla that came out, that was a Japanese story, but they made the main character was a, a Chinese character. Should we expect to see more in television going towards foreign culture, foreign language, foreign markets, should companies be looking to expand into that direction? What What are your thoughts? Well, I know coming the other way, certainly Spanish language and bilingual production is very big and looking for those libraries in OTT space on the feature film going out the other way. That's been true for years where many of these films 
don't make their money until they hit the Asian markets. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, that's just going to keep growing. Of course, we have all the political issues going on and let's see what happens with TikTok and since now Oracle's right. cast its hat in the game to maybe acquire them. But yes, I think, you know, despite everyone's that wants to push back on this, the earth is actually pretty small. So global markets are just bleeding right into the U.S. market and just the same as in time and appointment viewing and everything we talked about at the outset of the conversation, geographical aspect of segmentation is only relevant as far as matching up content to the relevant culture. But in terms of overall distribution as a strategy, they're all bleeding together. But yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, 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 yes. Definitely, it's all going to be pushing out into these other places. Yeah. I think I'm enjoying it more. Just, you know, I'm enjoying seeing diversity and cultures. I'm enjoying seeing things blend. And that's another thing that with this pandemic, it's kind of accelerated what was likely to have happened already. It's just now it's accelerated it very, very fast. So we always enjoy you know, just kind of jiving with you and and catching up and finding, you know, keeping a pulse on things that are going on. So we want to thank you so much, Allison, for joining us and and sharing your thoughts with us. And again, we wish you and everyone at IT Alliance very well. Thanks so much. Yeah, Allison, thank you for the time. I know you're you're doing a lot of go-to-market strategy and planning, taking a lot of startups into the market. How can everybody or anybody reach you if they're looking for more information? Uh, The best way is just LinkedIn. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's just Allison Dollar, and Dollar spelled like the money. Perfect. And uh, some of my other stuff we can talk about another time, like this space tourism and commercial space, which does cross over to this thing. But I think to uh, this last part of this conversation, I would wrap with everyone and just say it's a small world after all. And that's what's interesting to have reinforced to us during this crazy time. No, no, definitely agree. So, Allison Dollar, thank you so much. Michelle, thank you. This is Sarah Miller of Access Entertainment, Media Maven Podcast with my co-host, Michelle Koshman at AMB Publicity. We'll see everybody next week. See you next Bye-bye. week. Thanks, Bye. guys. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.